0: Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, our text for this morning is Psalm 19. And I'd like to begin by reading to you from the Belgic Confession, Article 2, where our fathers teach us we know God by two means. First, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe which is before our eyes as a most elegant book, wherein all creatures, great and small, are as so many characters leading us to see clearly his invisible attributes, even his eternal power and Godhead, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1, verse 20, all which things are sufficient to convince men and lead them, lead them without excuse. Second, he makes himself more clearly and fully known to us by his holy and divine word. That is to say, as far as is necessary for us to know in this life to his glory and our salvation. There are obvious similarities between this article of the Belgian Confession and Psalm 19, for both speak of the creation and of Scripture. But there's also one very significant difference that we should not fail to notice. In the Belgic Confession, the article speaks of the revelation of God, and speaks of that revelation of God as happening in both the creation and Scripture. But in Psalm 19, though David speaks of the revelation of God in creation, the heavens declare the glory of God, the emphasis of the second part of the psalm is not on the idea of revelation. Though it's implicit in that second part of the psalm, the emphasis of that second part of the psalm is instead on the benefits of the revelation of God to us. And especially on the benefits of the law, not the revelation of God in general, but the revelation of the law in particular. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. But that in itself points us to another significant difference between the revelation of God in creation and his revelation in his word. The revelation of God in creation does declare his glory. But we do not read of that revelation either in the Belgic Confession or in the psalm that it converts the soul. It is the word of God alone in which the power of God to convert the soul, the power of God unto salvation, resides. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Let's consider this psalm under the theme, Rejoicing in the Heavens and in the law of the Lord. Rejoicing in the heavens and in the law of the Lord. We consider first, then, the heavens declare the glory of God, verses 1 to 6, and secondly, the law of the Lord converts the soul, verses 7 to 14. The heavens declare the glory of God. We've spoken before in our series on the Psalms of the fact that in the scriptures teaching regarding the heavens, we are to understand that there are three heavens. Our sky is the first heaven, the place of the stars and the planets is the second heaven, and the dwelling place of the angels is the third heaven. But when we read that word heavens here in Psalm 19, I do not believe that the psalmist has in mind the dwelling place of the angels. And I do not believe that he has that in mind because that dwelling place of the angels is invisible to us and can therefore declare nothing to us of the glory of God except as we learn of that heaven through The Scriptures themselves. What the psalmist has in mind here in Psalm 19 verse 1 is those heavens that are visible to our eyes, the heavens above us which we see when we go out into the creation. Those heavens declare to us the glory of God. That's the first thing that we must understand. They declare that glory of God, people of God, in the first place because they are so inconceivably vast. David, of course, knew something of that vastness of the heavens. But we, through the science of our recent times, know much more of the vastness of those heavens. Millions and even billions of light years in extent. And yet, according to Isaiah chapter 40, our God holds those heavens in his hands and measures them with the span of his hand, measures the whole of those vast heavens with his hand. That's in Isaiah 40 verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span of and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure measure weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. The heavens are very great, but our God is infinitely greater than they are. Those heavens also reveal to us the glory of God because of the innumerable multitude of the stars within them. Again, we know much more about this than David did. And this only serves to confirm the truth of David's words. Millions upon billions of stars. Thousands upon thousands of galaxies. Each of which galaxies has in it billions of stars. And yet, in Psalm 147, verses 4 and 5, he counts The number of the stars, he calls them all by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. He counts the number of the stars. Not only does he know the exact number of the stars, which is far beyond our capacity even to count, but he calls them all by name. He knows each one according to its unique character and has given to each one a name in his infinite wisdom. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. The firmament then shows his handiwork. And that word handiwork, of course, emphasizes the skill and artistry that have gone into the construction of the heavens. Our Lord is a tremendously skilled and wise craftsman and a tremendously great artist who has drawn upon the face of the heavens the infinite beauty of the tracery of the stars and has shown to us in all that glory of the stars his own great glory and his own great wisdom and skill. We then, upon contemplation of the heavens, admire the skill of our God, the majesty of our God, the wisdom and power of our God. For in them he declares not just things about his creation, which most which most men, with regard to most men, is all they see, but declares his own great and glorious name. Now in... In the following verses, David continues to speak about the heavens. When David speaks to us in this psalm about the revelation of God in creation, he focuses his attention entirely on the heavens and what is in those heavens. He does not talk about the earth and about the stars individually. He talks just about the heavens. So when he goes on to say in verses 2 and 3 and 4, day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge, and so on, he's talking about what the heavens do. The first thing that he emphasizes about that revelation of God in the heavens is that they utter speech day after day, that is continuously, This voice of God that is heard in the heavens is a voice that is never silent. It repeats over and over and over again, without ever stopping, the same word, the same word regarding the glory of God and His handiwork. It repeats ad infinitum this one word about the glory of its Creator. God, as it were, says to us over and over and over again through the whole of the creation, the same thing over again. I am God. I am glorious. I am powerful. I am wise. This is the word that is repeated again and again throughout his creation. It's a continuous speech. The next thing that's emphasized is that it is a wordless speech. Verse 3, there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Notice that the word where there is in italics. So that you could read, there is no speech nor language, their voice is not heard. And depending on whether you put that word where in or not, the meaning of the verse is quite different. If the word where belongs there, as some commentators argue it does, then the point of that verse is that this speech, this continuous speech of God in the heavens, is a speech which is heard everywhere, in all languages and in all nations. But if that word does not belong there the emphasis of the verse is not on the universality of that word, but on the fact that that word of God spoken through the heavens is not verbal. And this verse then stands in contrast to verse 2, where David says, day unto day utters speech, and then he goes on in verse 3 to say, there is no speech. There is no language. Their voice is not heard. So, this speech of God, then, I think that's the correct interpretation. This speech of God is a speech without words. It's a speech that comes to us by the very existence of the creatures he has made. He has made them in such a way. That they display inherently his glory, his majesty, his power, and his wisdom. It is not until you get to verse 4 that David begins to talk about the universality of that speech. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. The word line there is very interesting. Usually, that word means, in Hebrew, measuring line. Either a plummet, a line used to measure whether a wall or whatever is plumb or not, or a line that's used to measure distance. But Calvin has rightly pointed out in his commentary that that there's at least one other place in the scriptures where that word line seems to refer to a line of writing. And that's Isaiah 28 where God uses those famous words precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little and there a little. And I think Calvin's right in saying that that word line here means line of writing. Their line of writing has gone out through all the world. That is, it is as if God has signed his artwork, the heavens, and he has not signed it in some obscure corner of his artwork with dim letters that can barely be discerned by careful eyes, but he has written his name in enormous capital letters across the whole face of the heavens. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world, so that no matter where you are in the earth, or no matter where you are in God's world, when you look up into the heavens, you must see the name of God written across the face of those heavens. You can never say then, I have not heard. You can never say, no man can ever say, God did not speak to me. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. And that's exactly the point that the Apostle Paul makes in Romans chapter 1. In that passage which we read a little while ago, Beginning at verse 18, we read, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So the heavens declare the wrath of God against the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's a key line, people of God, in understanding what the apostle has to say here in Romans 1. Who suppress the truth in in unrighteousness. The point that the apostle is making there is that these men know the truth and suppress it. It's not that they're ignorant of the truth, they're ignorant in the sense that they've never heard it. They know the truth and they suppress it in unrighteousness. Why do they know the truth? Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. So what may be known of God is manifest in them. They are creatures of God too. And as creatures of God, they also speak of his glory and his handiwork. It's in them. The voice of God is in them. But more than that, verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. So that they are without excuse. So the creation of the world declares his invisible attributes, his eternal power and Godhead. And then the apostle goes on to say, because although they knew God, although they knew God, again emphasizing the fact that they had knowledge, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. So they suppressed the knowledge of God. They cannot say then, we have not heard the voice of God. The psalm and the apostle make it clear that they hear the voice of God and they stop their ears. The glory of God is evident to all men, everywhere, of whatever language and of whatever nation, in the heavens. Now, David goes on, then, in the psalm, to speak of another way in which God's glory is revealed in the heavens. He singles out the sun as the greatest, to us anyway, the greatest and most evident, most prominent creature in those heavens. And he says of the sun, in them he has set a tabernacle for the sun which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race." Two very beautiful metaphors for the sun there. In the first place, the sun is like a bridegroom. At night, the bridegroom retires to his tent. And that's just simply a figure of speech, of course, for the nighttime, when the sun is not visible to us. God has set up a tent for the sun, and when the day ends, the sun retires to its tent like a bridegroom to his chamber. But in the morning, the sun comes out of that tent. In all the glory and strength and radiant beauty of his young manhood, gloriously arrayed to reveal again to us the glory of its creator. In the second place, the sun is like a strong man running a race. And here the emphasis is on the strength and swiftness of the sun. The sun is like a man who has trained himself to the last degree of perfection of strength and now is ready to run his race and runs that race more swiftly than any other to accomplish the purpose for which he went forth. The sun runs its race swiftly across the face of the heavens and thus also in its swiftness declares the glory of God. Its race is a race of vast extent. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end. So the sun passes through the whole heavens from one end to the other, making known in all places the glory of its creator. And there is nothing hidden from its heat from the hottest part of the hottest desert on the face of the world to the coldest part of the North and South Poles, the heat of the sun is known, just as the knowledge of God also is known throughout all places. The heavens indeed declare the glory of God. Now, in the second part of the psalm, the psalmist turns his attention very abruptly to the law of God. There's one thing, at least, that we have to notice about these verses before we jump into the details. And that is, in this part of the psalm, you read, for the first time, the name Yahweh. The law of Yahweh is perfect. The testimony of Yahweh, the statutes of Yahweh, the commandment of Yahweh, the fear of Yahweh, the judgments of Yahweh. And again at the end of the psalm, O Yahweh, my strength and my redeemer. That name is, of course, the name by which God reveals himself to his people, his covenant name. And it's a very wonderful thing that God has revealed to us his people. His own personal name so that we may know him and call him by that name Yahweh but that name of Yahweh is in his law not in his creation you don't read that name in the first part of the psalm the only time you read that name the name of God in the first part of the psalm is line one where you have the name God instead of Yahweh God does not reveal himself as Yahweh, as the covenant God of His people in the creation. He reveals Himself as Creator. He reveals Himself as God. And all men receive that knowledge, though many suppress it. But in His Word, He reveals Himself as the faithful covenant God of His people. We should also notice about these verses that they really fall into two parts. In verses 7 to 11, David speaks of the benefits of the law and rejoices in that law. But in verses 12 to 14, David turns to prayer in response to that law. So we have to divide our consideration of this section of the psalm into two parts. First what David says about the law itself, and then how he responds to that law in prayer. Now we have, in verses 7, 8, and 9, six descriptions of the law, six words for the law. Law, testimony, statutes, commandments, fear, and judgments. Let's just touch briefly on the particular emphases of those words. Law, we are told, means really instruction. In his law, God instructs us about himself, about his works, and about his ways, about his righteousness, and about his faithfulness. The word testimony bears the idea that the word of God bears witness to him. That is, it is a constant speech of God to us, regarding himself. It bears witness to us. And it bears, of course, a true witness. The statutes of the Lord emphasize the preceptive character of the law. That is, that in his law, God tells us what we must do and what we must not do. It is his precepts that come to us. The word commandment has the same sort of idea with the additional Thought that they are authoritative precepts. The Lord governs us; has a right to govern us, and in His Word gives us His commandment. But notice that that word "commandment" is singular here. Would have been very easy to use the plural, the commandments of the Lord are pure. But He uses the singular, pointing us to the truth that fundamentally there is but one commandment: the great commandment, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart." And mind and soul. The fear of the Lord is also an interesting expression because it's very clear in the context that that word fear is a synonym for the commandments. The commandments are called the fear of the Lord. And they're called the fear of the Lord because first they inspire in us by revealing to us his righteousness. Fear of him. Awe and reverence for him. And secondly, they are called the fear of the Lord because it is fear of the Lord that is awe and reverence for him that moves us to obedience. And finally, you have the word judgments. Judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. That is, his verdicts. His declarations concerning righteousness and unrighteousness, and concerning the punishment of transgressors and the reward of those who do good. All of these words, though, describe the same thing. Now we also have, in those three verses, seven adjectives that describe that law or testimony. The law is perfect, the testimony is sure, the statutes are right, the commandment is pure, the fear is clean, the judgment is judgments are true and righteous altogether. Again, let's briefly talk about the meaning of each one of those adjectives. The law is perfect, that is, it is complete. There's nothing lacking from it. We do not need to go to any other source to find out what we need to know. Everything that we need to know is there in that law of God. It is sure, that is, it is steadfast. It's certain. It's incontrovertible. It is what it is and will not ever be anything else. The statutes of the Lord are right, that is, they are upright. They are the declaration of the righteousness of God and therefore reveal what is right, what is just, what is true and faithful to us. The commandment of the Lord is pure. There's no impurity, no uncleanness, no defilement, no corruption in it. The fear of the Lord is clean. That's really synonymous, I think, with purity. There's no uncleanness in the law of God. It's perfectly and wholly morally right. And finally, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. They are true judgments. They are righteous judgments. Now you also have, then, in connection with those expressions about the law, participial phrases. And here we have five Phrases, six descriptions of the law, seven adjectives, and five participial phrases. The law converts the soul, makes wise the simple, rejoices the heart, enlightens the eyes, and endures forever. The first four of those talk about the benefits of the law to us, and the last about the enduring character of the law. It converts the soul, it draws the soul back from sin to obedience. Back from death to life, out of darkness and into light. The law makes the simple wise. That word simple is not a derogatory word, but is a word simply that describes those who are simple as far as this world is concerned. The foolish and base things of the world, as Paul calls them in 1 Corinthians 1. In Psalm 119, David expands on that idea of the law making wise. Verses 98 to 100 of Psalm 119. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep your precepts. The law makes the simple wise, so wise, in fact, that their wisdom is greater than the the wisdom of the wise men of this world. Because the law converts the soul and makes the simple wise, it also rejoices the heart. It makes us glad. And it enlightens the eyes. We might think that that Phrase enlightening the eyes, has to do with understanding. But if you look it up in the rest of the scriptures, you'll find that it doesn't have to do with understanding, but rather with reviving. When we are sick or depressed or tired or hungry or thirsty, our eyes become dull. When we receive what we need, food or drink or rest, or whatever it may be that we need, our eyes become bright again. That's what this psalm is talking about. The law enlightens the eyes. It revives us again. It invigorates us. It gives us joy and therefore restores us to vigor. And then finally, the commandments endure forever. They are the everlasting word of God. And they never never change. The laws of men change. They continue to change all the time and not usually for the better. But the law of God does not change. It is the same from age to age. Day after day in every nation and tongue and people under heaven the law of God speaks the same thing, requires the same thing, reveals the same thing to us, bears the same testimony To every man. Now, all of this that David says about the law may seem to contradict what the Apostle Paul emphasizes, especially in Romans and in Galatians. For in Galatians and Romans, the Apostle Paul makes very clear that salvation is not by the law, and yet David says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Does the law then contain the power to convert the soul in and of itself? What then about Romans chapter 8? Where Paul says, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. What the law could not do, and yet David says, the law converts the soul. We have to remember, people of God, that when David talks about the law here in Psalm 19, he's talking about the whole law. He's not talking just about The Ten Commandments, but he's talking about what we call the civil and ceremonial laws as well. And in the ceremonial laws is declared the gospel. In those ceremonial laws are many types of Christ and of his atoning work. The sacrifices pointed the people of God to the forgiveness of sins through the perfect Lamb of God the priesthood of the temple established by the law pointed the people of God to the priesthood of Jesus Christ on their behalf, making sacrifice of himself for their sins as the great high priest and coming before the presence of God to make intercession for them. The laws regarding uncleanness and cleansing pointed the people of God to the need for cleansing in Jesus Christ. By the law then God continually instructed his people in the knowledge of salvation, in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, in the knowledge of the way of salvation, which is salvation by grace through faith. The law taught them that. The law was the declaration, not just of what God required and what God forbade, but the law was the declaration of the gospel. And that law, in that sense, does convert. That word of God, which he reveals to us in the ceremonial law, did and was, by God's power, the means to bring the people of God back to himself. The power was not in the prescriptions of the law, that is, that the people were shown obey this law and by your obedience you will come to salvation. That's not what the law said. The law said to them as they obeyed, as they came to offer their sacrifices and as they came to the priests and as they performed the washings and so on of the law, the law said to them, this is God's work on your behalf. This is what he does. This is the grace of God ministered to you. Through Jesus Christ, your Savior. We have to remember, people of God, that the law stands as a central element of our relationship with God. It's often forgotten today, I think. It's as if the gospel and law are two separate things, and you can kind of push the law to the side and you can focus all your attention on the gospel the declaration of the work of Jesus Christ. And the law doesn't really matter that much even anymore. That's not the way it is. God is a righteous God, a holy God. God has declared His righteousness in His law. He has said in His law, this is what I am like. I am the righteous and holy God. And you must be like me. That's really what the law is saying. Be holy as I am holy. Because the law sets before us the righteousness of God himself. We've disobeyed. And in disobeying people of God, we have forsaken the sphere of righteousness. Righteousness. We have stepped outside the boundaries established by the law. And in stepping outside the boundaries established by the law, we have stepped into death and darkness and misery and all sorts of evils. The work of salvation is that God takes us back out of that darkness and death and misery into the sphere of the law, into the sphere of His righteousness. That's essential. Essential to the proper understanding of His salvation. His salvation does not ignore righteousness. It restores righteousness. It brings us back into that fenced area of the law. First, by removing our guilt through the gracious atonement of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He forgives our transgressions of the law, which brought death and misery on us. And then by sanctifying us, that is, by restoring us to holiness, by restoring us to the way of obedience. It's only within that fence area of the law that we have light. We do not have that life by obedience to the law. We have it because God was gracious and restored us to that fenced area of the law through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so David rejoices in the law. He says, it's more valuable to me than gold. It's sweeter to my taste than honey. It warns me of sin. It says to me, here's the boundary. Don't step over it. Don't transgress that boundary because as soon as you transgress, you have stepped into darkness and death again. Beyond that boundary, there's no light. There's no life. There's no joy. There's no peace. There's no love of God. Within the boundaries is the love of God. Stay here. And secondly, in keeping it, there is great reward. That is, there is, in keeping of the law, the reward of life. Adam had that life so long as he kept the law of God in the Garden of Eden. He lost it as soon as he transgressed. We have that life too, through our restoration to righteousness. It's not a reward that we earn. It's not a reward that we merit. The reward of grace, as our Catechism calls it, a reward wholly undeserved, given to us by God, through Jesus Christ, is a free gift of grace, given to us as in Christ Jesus, he restores us to his own righteousness. That's why, in verses 12 to 14, David turns to prayer. He does not say, well, the law converts the soul, so I'll keep the law and I'll have conversion. He says, the law converts the soul, and then he turns to God and he says, cleanse me from secret faults, keep me back from presumptuous sins. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. He turns to God as the source of his salvation and of his righteousness. Three petitions David makes here fundamentally. First, cleanse me from secret faults. We do not, people of God, fully understand all the sins that we commit. There are many of those sins that are hidden from us. Not through any inadequacy in the law. The law is perfect. But through inadequacy in ourselves. Because we are ignorant of the law or because we are blind through the darkness of our own understanding. Through the deceitfulness of our own hearts. And our hearts are very deceitful. There are many, many things that we do that are transgressions of the law of which we are not even aware. And God made provision for those sins, by the way, in the laws of the sacrifices in the Old Testament. If you go to Leviticus 4, law, God made provision for sins committed in ignorance. In the sacrifices Israel was to bring. Sins committed in ignorance. Of these sins, David says, cleanse me. He says, there, I know there is much in me that I don't even know about. Much darkness, much sin in me that I have no idea of. Cleanse me of these secret sins so that I may be wholly perfect, wholly upright before you, having no spot or wrinkle or blemish at all. Secondly, David prays, keep me back from presumptuous sins. Presumptuous sins are the opposite of secret sins. Presumptuous sins are sins committed in defiance against God, in active rebellion against Him, in the full knowledge that they are sins. We know that we are sinning, and we go ahead and do what we want to do anyway. Those are presumptuous sins. Those are the kinds of sins that gain dominion over a man. Let them not, David says, have dominion over me. Sins like lust and drunkenness and anger, and thievery, and many, many other sins that are done in defiance against God. And if we continue in the way of those sins, become masters of us. It becomes very difficult for us to put those sins off. With regard to those presumptuous sins, David says, keep me back from them altogether. Do not let me fall into these presumptuous sins, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. And finally, David prays, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. That is, inwardly, in my heart and in my speech, as well as in all my deeds, make me holy, So that everything that I say, everything that I will, everything that I think, and everything that I do may be perfectly complete, righteous, and holy, and therefore acceptable to you. O Lord, my covenant God, my strength, and my Redeemer, in you is the strength to do it and in you is my redemption from all the sins that have overcome me. This is, people of God, a song also of the Messiah himself. The judgments of the Lord were delightful to him, sweet as honey, more to be desired than gold. The judgments of the Lord were to him the way of life, through all of life. And this prayer that he made, cleanse me from secret faults, keep me back from presumptuous sins, let my words and meditations be acceptable in your sight, were fully answered in his case, so that he never transgressed in any way, even in a secret way, the law of God. And thus became, by his perfect righteousness, our righteousness before God. Having heard the word of God, let us say Amen. Amen. Let's now make confession of our faith using the words of the Nicene Creed. found in on page thirteen.